there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Roseanne Cash had big shoes to fill as Johnny Cash's daughter, so instead she ended up walking her own path. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Stay tuned for a special interview and performance with Roseanne Cash, recorded live at WXPN in Philadelphia. And later, we'll review a new album from another singer-songwriter, Jenny Lewis. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and we're going to dive into our interview and performance by Roseanne Cash later. Every once in a while, I'd be flashing on, on top of this, who her father was. (laughs) Yeah, Jim, it's quite a legacy and a daunting one in that uh, I think she's been reluctant to talk about Johnny for many decades. And only recently has she started to talk about Johnny and sort of get into some of the details of their life together. We're going to get some of that later on in the show. But first, we've got some music news. Still alive and well from Johnny Winter, the great blues guitarist, uh, Texas-bred blues guitarist, who died at the age of 70 a few days ago while on the road in Europe. It was apt that he died on tour. He never really stopped, even though he was in ill health. Uh, Johnny Winter's career uh, stretches back to the mid-60s when he started playing rock and roll out of Texas, discovered the blues soon after, and became a huge blues acolyte ever after. In fact, when you talk about the vocabulary of the blues rock guitar, I think Johnny Winter is at the very top of that list. Famous for a number of reasons, he and his brother, younger brother, Edgar, had a number of hits in the 70s. Edgar probably outdid him from a commercial standpoint, but Johnny was no slouch when it came to making big records. All of his records in the 70s sold fairly well. He recorded a track called Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo that introduced not only him to a wider public, but his guitar player, Rick Derringer, who went on to have a hit with that song. Winter continued to record and also produce in that decade. One of the things I think that was maybe given short shrift when people talked about Johnny Winter's death was the key role he had in the comeback of one of his heroes, Muddy Waters. He produced three key Muddy Waters albums beginning in the late 70s with Hard Again that really brought Waters back into the limelight shortly before Waters' own death. One of the tracks from that era, Manish Boy, a a cover of a song that uh, Waters had performed in the 50s, you can hear Winter all over it as a producer, guitar 
guitar player, but also just as a foil, a vocal foil, an enthusiastic vocal foil for what Muddy Waters was doing. That mean This is Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions, and that's the song A Feather's Not a Bird by our guest this week, Roseanne Cash. Now that last name gives it away, right? Roseanne's the daughter of music legend Johnny Cash. And being born into music has given the singer-songwriter special insight into the business. But Nashville proved to be more full of friction than family ties and forced her to abandon country music and craft her own sound, unbound by any category. Now on her 13th solo album, The River and the Thread, Roseanne and husband John Leventhal tried to capture all the geographic places that gave special meaning to her life and music, places like the Cash Ancestral Home in Virginia or Memphis, Tennessee. Some narratives are fictional, others draw from family lore, and Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal joined Greg and me as well as a live studio audience at WXPN in Philadelphia for a special performance of these new songs. They also talked about the Cash musical legacy, rock and roll's great river songs, and why there's no love lost between Roseanne and the country music establishment. We began by asking her about moving from writing personal songs to songs about a place. So I'm going down to Florence just to learn to love the thread. Well, the last record came out in 2010, and, you know, a couple years after that, well, we were touring for a while with it and started going... Well, you know, I was writing some songs, John was writing some songs, but we weren't really interested in just recording the next 12 songs. We had gotten really interested in very old-fashioned concept records and themed albums with a single narrative and something that was really rooted in geography. And it so happened we started taking a lot of trips down south and... For various reasons, one reason, which is uh, I was working with Arkansas State University to restore restore my dad's boyhood home. And uh, one day driving through Osceola, Arkansas, we stopped, and there's kind of a haunted, bleak little place, and uh, John saw this sign, and it said it was the home of Reggie Young and and Albert King, right? And Sun Seals. And Sun Seals. So Reggie Young, you know, great, great guitar player from that whole Muscle Shoals group of musicians. And John said, you know, there's something here. And we started writing songs. So, I mean, you knew some of these locales from your oh, youth. Sure. But, but you're, for all intents and purposes, last two decades, you're a New Yorker. 23 years a New Yorker, yeah. There you go. That's a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was rediscovering a place that, that 
you know, I mean, only existed vaguely for you. It was going down there with our hearts really open. You know, it's not like I hadn't been to the South a lot. But after leaving the South, I'd lived in Nashville only nine years. And I just, every time I went down after that, my stomach kind of hurt when I got off the plane. Like, it just felt claustrophobic to me. And, you know, there's a very insular quality to the South in some people and places. And some of it's strange and beautiful and wonderful, and some of it does feel, you know, claustrophobic. So when we went down um, for the Dias Project, the Arkansas Project, around my dad's boy at home, going to Alabama to see my friend, Natalie Channon, and she taught me to sew. And as she was threading my needle one day, she said, you have to love the thread. <laughs> and it just, it brought tears to my eyes. She wasn't speaking metaphorically, but it brought tears to my eyes. And I thought, man, you have to love the thread. So the river and the thread yes. is, is the title of the record. So it sounds like you didn't, didn't go down there with the idea, of, we're going to be inspired and, and write songs. It just sort of, those songs came to you as you were happening to do this other stuff that was part of your life. No, we didn't say, let's go to the South and write an album, no. But once we were down there, as John said, we started to get inspired. It's one thing to say, we're going to do an album by the, about the South, and it's another thing to actually do it and have it mean something. So, I mean, I think we were both inspired by a couple of trips we took, and then we were thinking about it, and we dipped our toe in the creative waters, as it were, to see what it actually meant to us. And lo and behold, we discovered we were really inspired. It really led us to you know, great places as songwriters. I'm fascinated by this because, as you said, Roseanne, you've been living in New York for 23 years. You you were born in Memphis, but you didn't spend a lot of time there initially in your life. It was California. Right. John, you're you're pretty much lifelong. Yeah, born and bred. New Yorker. So what is it about the... You know, I'm, I'm sort of getting this kind of John Fogarty, California kid, imagines what the South is like and, and writes these great Credence songs about the the feeling of the... Area and it seems almost like in some ways it was like that with you guys getting well, getting, getting for me down definitely. There. I mean, I'm an for outsider. For him, more than me. Yeah. I mean, mm. I'm definitely an outsider, but I've also been a professional musician, you know, uh, for 40 years and have loved music since I was 10. So it's hard to have really loved popular music of the last half a century without somehow being fully influenced and aware of and sort of taken in the importance of music that's come from the Delta and Appalachia and New Orleans and various places. I mean, it, even though I grew up in New York, it's when I heard those songs, it's you couldn't help it. Like, where is that? What is that? Who are <laughs> they? Why did they do this? Why are all these incredible songs coming from this one town called Memphis? I mean... I can't um, underestimate how powerful it is to me now. I mean, I thought it was a footnote that my parents were both Southerners. But I and that I was born in Memphis. But to really feel those connections, it's not unique to me that you know in midlife we want to know where we came from, who we came from, what they were connected to, and so we can know ourselves better. And isn't it weird, Roseanne, how when you go back to a place where you grew up, it it, it looms large in your imagination? Then you say, "Wow, this place was so small." <laughs> well, I didn't grow up there, but right, but. You're right. I went back and saw that seven children were raised in this tiny house and that FDR, the WPA, saved my family. They were so desperately poor. It just blows my mind that I'm a New Yorker and two generations back we were cotton farmers. It's, uh, you know, my kids need to know that they are connected to that, too. 
Well, you've got your acoustic guitars. We're live here at WXPN with Roseanne Cash. You're going to play us. What are, what are you guys going to play us? This is really our story, uh, John's story, my story of traveling around together and kind of keeping your eyes on each other to keep the course steady. This is called Modern Blue. Went to Barcelona on the midnight train Walked the streets of Paris in the pouring rain I flew across an island in the northern sea And I ended up in Memphis, Tennessee I keep my head That's Modern Blue from Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal on Sound Opinions. We're here in Philadelphia, WXPN. Uh, from the new album, The River and the Thread, a beautiful record, a concept record. You know, you, you brought that word up, Roseanne. I wasn't going to use that word. <laughs> I know some artists don't want to hear it. it. Yeah, it's not an old, you know, it's a kind of an old-fashioned term, but I think, we're, I think we're all concept album lovers in this room, actually. But uh, 
the love of concept albums. Where, oh, where did that come album. from? Where, where, where do you remember hearing concept albums as a kid? Why was that maybe a cut above just hearing a song, you know, in a vacuum kind of thing? From early childhood, I loved concept records. My favorite records of my dad's were the concept records, Bitter Tears, Ballads of the True West, even Orange Blossom Special. And as a teenager, you know, Tommy. And even Joni Mitchell's Blue, although not traditionally a concept record, it felt like one to me. They always just drew me in. I loved albums that had an arc of a single narrative. I think we were intrigued by the idea of trying to create a world. Yeah, a world. Mm. That's we're true. not pretending like we're creating an authentic world. We're just creating this kind of world that meant something to us of what we felt about the South and the people that we knew and the places that we loved. And Right, and it, to populate these songs with some real characters, too, was really exciting and kind of a challenge. Well, because you've gotten that, you know, there was so much autobiographical confessional people would say you know you were working things out in song for so long but now to be able to write about other people to create other characters to tell other tales and myths it's got to be liberating in a way well it was scary john really pushed me on that from the beginning i was done with the autobiography (laughs) no more (laughs) i said no more autobiography you're just not that interesting honey (laughs) (laughs) well here's the uh, here's the ironic truth It's all autobiography. It doesn't matter. Exactly. It, it really it, somehow is in a convoluted elliptical way. He did he did keep saying don't write about your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but of save course, it for Twitter. <laughs> save it for Twitter. Of no, course let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> there you know, the emotional resonance, whether it's my feelings or projected feelings or a character's feelings, you know, it's hopefully people relate to that. But writing about the real characters did make me feel a little self-conscious. But then once I slipped inside what I thought were their heads, it was thrilling. What's the temperature, darling? A hundred or more. We'll have more with Roseanne Cash in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we're going to review the long-awaited new album from Postal Service and Rilo Kiley singer Jenny Lewis. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and our guest this week is Roseanne Cash. 
We recorded this conversation in front of a Philadelphia audience at WXPN. And Roseanne played songs from her new album, The River and the Thread, a concept album about the South, a place that often gets mythologized in American music. Here, Roseanne explains why she chose to write about these Southern characters, both the ideal and the reality. What changed for you about the South as you were writing these songs? Well, that is a really important topic because we could have been Pollyannas about the South and only shine the light on um, the good parts of the music, you know? And there's been horrible violence and um, in the South that I didn't feel we could ignore, but then we thought, this is a record about this world, as John said, that we've created with these characters and these people. The music is so resonant to us, and every Roots musician owes something to the Delta. This is the light where we're going to shine the light. You know, we don't have to um, get into everything else. It's not that I'm discounting well, we're not historians. It. We're not historians. Yeah, we're not historians. That's true. And, you know, there are references made, you know, in World of Strange Design, just the um, the prism that you look through, some people in the South look through, and how unique it can be. Beautiful, but very odd. And also, there's a reference to Emmett Till in Money Road, in the song Money Road, and that spot where the civil rights movement was sparked. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've told that story. So the, 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 what was it, a cafe where Till allegedly... A, a grocery uh, store. A grocery store. Allegedly yeah. flirted with a white woman and right. winds up in his death. Is, you know, and, and the Tallahatchie Bridge yeah. and Robert Johnson's Crossroads, they're all there, they're right? They're all there. In such close Spitting proximity, distance. it blows your mind. Yeah. And you have no idea. And it's in the most haunted landscape. And it's not like there are hordes of tourists, you know. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. You can still get a feeling for how this place that we're talking about created all these incredible musicians, you know, from everybody, Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, Johnny Cash, uh, Bobby Gentry. I mean, it, you know, it's you, for all the reasons you're just talking about, you drive down these roads and you can still get a sense. It's a hundred years ago. It's 150 years ago. It's 50 years ago. You can kind of feel what they may have felt in the air, you know, and get a, get a, just a little bit of a, you know, part of the, Time travel. Yeah. Were you guys going to play Muddy Road, perchance? Sure. Sure. Do you want us to do that now? Sure. I think that's great. I was dreaming about the Tallahatchie Bridge. From where we live But the long line At the pearly gate The keepers of our fate None of them Will congregate Out Lonesome boy in a foreign land 
This is just too good for words, ain't it? John Leventhal, Roseanne Cash. We're thrilled to be here with them. At WXBN on Sound Opinions. So, Roseanne, I got a confession to make. Well, number one, I'm jealous as heck, because when you found out he was Greg Cotton, and you've only ever talked to him on the... He got a big hug. He got a hug. He is now the coolest person in Philadelphia today. You'll get one at the end of the show. The songwriting process, you know, your evolution, Roseanne, uh, has fascinated me. I mean, people may not remember, but uh, 11, I think I got that right, 11 number one country hits in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty good record. And then you, you make a record in, in, uh, in 1990, Interiors, where everything sort of changes. Country radio goes, what, what is this? We don't then, want her no more. And then <laughs> soon after, you start working with John. 
And you've been working with John for 20 years now, to the point where now, if I understand this correctly, John, you wrote most of the music, almost all the music on this record. And Roseanne, you wrote just about all the lyrics. That partnership. And John, I'd like you to speak to this. When you started working with Roseanne, what did you see there? Did you, did you see it ending up here? No, <laughs> right. seriously. I mean, because, you know, you're not... Oh, I, someone I, was giving me a look, so I didn't hear the question. No dis... Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, man. Yeah. I know what it feels like to work with your wife. It's got to be, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's gotta be tough. But, so, let's, uh, so let's move on. Yes, no, exactly. Let's skip these questions. Okay, everybody no, turn right. off your cell phones. This is strictly... No, I have been asked this question many times. Yeah. I mean, when we first met, I was already... I mean, Roseanne was already very well established in, uh, in, in Nashville, and I had been in New York. I, not quite as well established, but I had made some records as a... Produ- you know, I've been producing for a little bit in, in writing. I've always been a songwriter first. I always think of myself as a songwriter anyway. It's it's been a long and complicated and beautiful and challenging and exhilarating dance to kind of get to the place where we collaborated as much as we have on I would say the last two records. I think in the beginning, if this is what you're asking me, I was more probably I'll be your producer. We did a little bit of co-writing, but Rose had her songs and I tried to find the best way. But she's kind of slowly let me, you know, infiltrate the songwriting thing, which is really my first love anyway. So it's all it's been great, you know. Well, it's been a great dovetail because I was not interested in co-writing in those years you were talking about. It was felt very territorial about my songs and I didn't want to compromise and I had a single vision. And the older I get, the more I want to collaborate. And it so happens that he's very good at things that I'm okay at. <laughs> and, you know, and he he's not really a lyric writer all the time. So it works out for us. I mean, that in itself is marriage. You bring your best selves and hope that it's something bigger well there is an audience now right and and and, and what's the relationship with nashville not the place the industry the mentality like now do you feel any connection no i don't really have a relationship and i don't say that pejoratively i just it's uh the commercial country music industry in nashville is its own thing you know and i definitely a way outlier from that but Fortunately, you know, the Americana community has grown up, and as Emmylou Harris said, we were doing Americana before it had a name, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but there's a real community there, and they've embraced us, and we have a lot of friends in it, and we love the music, so that's, it's been a good forum. You, 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 in a lot of ways, a lot of people call you a defining artist in that area. Even when you were having the so-called country hits, they said, well, these are really, um, this is really what Amer- Americana became. And that's why I was trying to get at a little bit, John, with, with you coming at the perspective of, you know, I've read some interviews with you where you've talked about, hey, I'm a, I'm a Beatles guy. I'm, you know, I'm right. coming from this perspective. So you're working with this so-called country artist. Did you feel like there was a way for you to work with what Roseanne already had established in a way that was like, okay, I can build on what she's doing? Or did it feel like you were, you had to find a way in there? Well, I definitely had to find a way in, but I don't think it had anything to do with genres or influences. I think it was just our particular creative chemistry. I mean, yeah, I love the Beatles. They're kind of a major foundation, but I kind of, the way I'm wired, even though the Beatles are huge because they were numero uno, I mean, you know, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Igor Stravinsky, Duke Ellington, uh, Miles Davis, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash. It's all the same in my head. It really is. I don't 
my influences are enormous. He's very ecumenical in his taste, and, and I'm not quite as, but I'm pretty ecumenical in my mm-hmm. taste. You know, I I like to hear Miles Davis followed by George Jones any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you compare the records you were making alongside some contemporaries, you know, Lyle Lovett, Steve Earle, people like that in the 80s, and those don't sound like the country records they're making today out, no. of, out of that uh, industry. Your perspective on what's coming out of Nashville as country music right now. Do you recognize it? Do you appreciate it? Do you like it? There are some artists I like. I think uh, Dirks Bentley is tremendously talented. And I, because I'm not clued in, I didn't really know what a lot of these people sounded like. It seems more anthemic to me, like, you know, anthemic pop songs and... Um, I'm not dissing it. It is what it is. It's like everybody can coexist in my mind. I just don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift? Uh, They're just just trying to get you to say (laughs) something, aren't they? No, they're not going to. I think she's tremendously talented, and I think she's been a great role model for young women. Are you guys going to play another song for us? What are are we going to hear? This song is about an area of Arkansas that is known as the Sunken Lands. And it's called the Sunken Lands because in the New Madrid earthquake of 1811, the land around the Mississippi actually sank by 15 feet. And the Mississippi flooded the plain. And uh, you would think it would make the soil very easy to till, but it didn't. They named it gumbo soil because it was so sticky and hard. But in this area of Arkansas... In 1935, FDR created a colony as part of the WPA program for 500 desperately poor families. And the Cash family was one of those families. And the hero of this song is uh, my grandmother, Carrie Cash, who raised seven children, picked cotton, was married to a man who was unkind, And she said when they moved into the cottage, there were five empty cans of paint in the front room of a home that was their salvation. Five cans of paint in the empty field the dust reveals the children cry the work never ends there's not a single friend who will hold her hand in the sunken Devil's choir 
five empty cans Sunken Lands on uh, XBN here, Sound Opinions with Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal. Song just reeking of the South, you know, uh, the, the, the space, the, the geography of that area, uh, you know, informed your music, informed your father's music. Um, I'm interested in, Roseanne, you, you're, you're, the way you've carried forward that enormous legacy, I know it's, it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, but with the list in 2009, the record you did with John, where you, where you addressed some of the great songs that your father passed down to you, said, hey, you've got to learn these songs. <laughs> these are great songs. And the, the beautiful memoir that you wrote, uh, composed in 2010, where you talk about um, your, your father's legacy in, in many ways and the influence on your life. Do you feel in any way, because there's so much about your father that's been written and stuff has been recorded, people have talked about him, do you feel in any way that you've got to get the story right for people so that they'll know? No. Is that, that any? No. I, that is such a frustrating um, occupation. When yeah. I was younger, I felt like, but that's not how it was. That's not how it happened. That's not who he is. You know, the, the tendency to mythologize him or make him bigger than a human being is humanity is actually the most compelling part of who he was. Um, and so I realized at some point that is not my job. People are going to project their ideals and opinions and agendas on him no matter what I would say. But at that time I realized if I don't at least tell my own story, that also could be co-opted someday. So that's why I wrote my memoir. And um, it's part of why we recorded the list. I felt like this is an enormous, beautiful legacy he's given me. It's, you know, it's past the sell-by date for me not to claim this in a gracious way and really integrate it. I've seen some really fascinating quotes uh, of you, um, Roseanne, talking about myth. You, you had to come to terms at some point with the fact that your father created that myth and it was part of the art. So when your kids come to you, or maybe they never do, but on rare occasions when they say, okay, all right, you know, what was he really like? Or, you know, did he like chocolate milk on his Cheerios? Or what, I mean, what's the, like, how do you, to them, in such an intimate way, tell them about Grandpa? Salted peanuts and buttermilk. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> that's, 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 see, that's, yeah, that, that re- says it all, Is right? Is that true? Well, Or was it salted peanuts and Coke? Salted peanuts and Coke, that's a real Southern thing to do. They all, except for my son, who was too young, he was four when my dad died, but even he has some memories, you know, of his grandpa teaching him how to use a typewriter and things like that. But my girls have their their own memories, and I find out things from them, you know, that grandpa said this, or this special thing about grandpa means something to them that maybe I had no idea. So it's not that I'm handing them 
um, box of memories or, you know, a complete picture. They have their own. You you uh, were a bit reluctant about this early on too, right? I mean, you, you wanted to stay as far away from it as possible sure. when you were a kid, right? Of course. But that's true of any young person. You you end up going into a field your parent is really successful in. You've got to push away to find out who you are. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did it a little longer than was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> but you were, you know, the writing part of it, and you have become a, a fine writer. Um, is there a part of you that's saying, you know what, it was a lot of, I, I, I kind of wish I'd stuck with that original vision. This This turned out to be different than I expected. I mean, is there ever days that you have like that? You mean about not being a performer, just right. being a writer? Yeah, you know, sometimes that happens in baggage claim. Like, I go, if I see one more, <laughs> if I see one more baggage claim, I'm gonna go postal. Like, I want to just be at home in my cave writing. But I love this. I mean, the, there's nothing that replaces a connection with your audience and the energy exchange and. We do something for each other, you know. And this internet thing hasn't replaced that. No, never will. <laughs> oh, we got it. Now, now only we open up that can of worms. Uh, does everybody follow Roseanne on Twitter? Because she's really good. <laughs> what do you like about it? What, what, is it? what has made it worthwhile enough for you to continue to do and, and, and continue to pursue over, over these last uh, bunch of years? Well, I didn't get on Twitter to promote anything. I got on because it's a forum and there were people I knew and it was like this big virtual cafe society to me. And I met, quote, e-met people up there, really interesting people. We had conversations and they were brief conversations, mm-hmm. which were was very appealing to me. And I have a lot of kinetic energy and it was a place to take it so my husband was happy I wasn't always putting it on him you know all of these (laughs) ideas and conversations and um as my friend Mike Doty who's a fantastic songwriter said it's like boot camp for songwriters if Mm. you can say it succinctly poetically sometimes in 140 characters that's helpful (laughs) is there anything on uh, the river and and the thread that that started as a tweet that's so interesting you're asking that because i'm and i'm glad to have the opportunity to say this there's this man who follows me i think he's a musician but he might not be i don't know him he's uh, scottish and i don't remember why we had this back and forth it was something about scottish aphorisms and he said you know there's this great scottish aphorism he said it shortly because it was twitter you ask me about my drinking, but you don't ask about my thirst. And I said, that is so beautiful. And I took it and twisted it a little and put it in uh, the song World of Strange Design. I said, we talk about your drinking, but not about your thirst. And when he heard, I had forgotten that he told me that aphorism because I looked it up on the internet. And then when this record came out, he goes, do you remember I told you that? (laughs) Is he angling for a songwriting credit? (laughs) We talk about your drinking, but not about your thirst. You set off through the minefield like you were around in first. So open up a window and hand the baby through. Point her towards the ghostly bridge and she'll know. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are here 
Not in our usual studio, but at WXPN with Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal. Thank you so much, guys, for being on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Our Real pleasure. pleasure. To watch videos of Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal or to catch up on previous episodes of the show, visit our website, soundopinions.org. And share your thoughts on Roseanne Cash or anything in the musical universe. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, we review the latest from California singer-songwriter Jenny Lewis. Son of rhythm, brother of the blues. The sound of darkness, the pull of the old. Everything is broken and painted in smoke Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called Just One of the Guys by Jenny Lewis from her third proper solo album, The Voyager. We don't often comment on videos, Greg, but there's a remarkable one for that uh, with Anne Hathaway and Kristen Stewart joining Jenny Lewis. Jenny's had several phases in her career. She was a child actress early on, and then she chose to devote herself to music. Rilo Kylie, a wonderful power pop band, got a lot of attention. She also started her solo career with 2006 album Rabbit Fur Coat. She was a guest on Sound Opinions around that time. Followed that record up. In between, worked as a duo, Jenny and Johnny, with her boyfriend Jonathan Rice, has sung with the Postal Service. It's been some time, though, since we got another solo album from Jenny Lewis. It's been years. During that time, she underwent several periods of stress. Her estranged father passed away. Rilo Kylie broke up. She suffered about with insomnia. All of these emotional travails went into the songwriting, and she got some impressive producers to help her make this album, The Voyager, mainly Ryan Adams, uh, working with her in his analog studio, but also the track that we bumped in with, Just One of the Guys, produced by Beck. What is Jenny Lewis giving us on this disc? We're going to play the title song of The Voyager by Jenny Lewis on Sound Opinions. By the time I got your letter, I lost my mind. I was tripping when you get Nothing lasts forever when you travel time. 
That's the Voyager, the title track from Jenny Lewis's third solo record. I love that track, Jim. Quite a song. And uh, it reflects on that jagged line, as she calls it, to recovery. All this turmoil that you were talking about, all of that is in these songs. She's not talking specifically about herself, but these characters, these narrators, are going through some uh, hell on earth, as it were, and it's in those songs. Now, you wouldn't notice it at first, because this is very much a 70s California record. I mean, she grew up out there. These songs, these sounds were in her mother's record collection. She grew up listening to Laurel Canyon pop and some of those Fleetwood Mac records from the late 70s. That's in her musical DNA, and you can really hear it here as well. There's almost a deceptive smoothness about this record. I think you could play this as background music at a wine bar, and nobody would be disturbed, you know? And I think that's the only real fault I can find with it, because it's it's beautiful music, beautifully sung, and really poignant in, in moments like that title song. But when you dig a little deeper and you recognize what these songs are about and what this, what these characters are going through, the music almost feels like a balm for this. And her voice has exactly the soothing quality that's required. This is the third solo record by Janie Lewis. All of them have been better than anything she's done with Rilo Kylie, as far as I'm concerned. This is a buy it record for me. I would agree, Greg. This is a buy-it record, but I started out by thinking it was a trash-it record. You know, uh, one of our big sources of disagreement is your love for Fleetwood Mac, uh, <laughs> to whom I have a complete antipathy. There's a little bit too much smoothness here, but this woman is writing about things that I can't recall many other people of, of our generation writing about. You know, uh, when she sings in Just One of the Guys about, I haven't had a baby and I refuse to be defined by not choosing to have a baby. I mean, that's really brave territory. You don't hear stuff like that or going into, you know, failed relationships and how they haunt her and you can't outrun them. Uh, There's some really great songwriting here. And I began to understand that the depth and the emotion and the sometimes uh, acerbic wit of the lyrics almost need that syrupy, saccharine California sound to balance them. This is like the very best of the Beach Boys, the heck with Fleetwood Mac. So it grew on me, but I had to get over the slickness of it. When I finally did, I came down firmly like you did on a bias for this record. What do we have on the show next week? 
Jim, next week we're going to pay tribute to Tommy Ramone, the great Ramones drummer who recently died, in a conversation about the great Ramones album, Rocket to Russia. Greg, we want to thank Adam Yaffe and everyone at WXPN for helping us with the Roseanne Cash recording. Sound Opinion's senior producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our production assistant is Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Sam Taylor. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 
I don't think Spinal Tap would have been possible without the Ruddles. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Travis calling from uh, Ventura, California. In light of your review of the uh, most recent Morrissey record, I thought that I would call in with my Morrissey joke. So Morrissey and Kanye West walk into a bar. Five minutes later, Kanye walks out saying, man, that guy's a pretentious, self-aggrandizing egomaniac. Thank you. Have a great day. We hate it when our friends become successful. messages to share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week on sound opinions from wbez chicago and distributed by prx